a congregation that is both United Methodist and United Church of Christ, a co-affiliated church. This is one of the topics that we explore today in the unique ministry of Reverend Dr. Sid Hall, pastor of Trinity Church of Austin, Texas, on episode number 38 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. We're discovering that unity is not is not the same as uniformity. That that we can find ways to respect and love each other, even when we disagree. Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Reverend Dr. Sid Hall is unique as a clergy person in the United Methodist Church. Unique in that he has spent 32 years in appointed ministry in one church, Trinity Church of Austin, Texas. That in and of itself is amazing. He is unique in taking Trinity from struggling for its very survival to a thriving, eclectic congregation serving a community that is multicultural, multiracial, diverse in sexual orientation and gender identities, not far from the University of Texas campus. Sid is unique in that he has led Trinity to become one of the first churches in Texas and indeed in the United States to become a reconciling ministry congregation in the United Methodist Church. That happened in 1992. That is a church that is outwardly affirming and welcoming to LGBT persons. There is an incredible story here that Sid and I will talk through. Unique because when it became apparent that there was indeed an uncertain future for LGBTQIA persons in the United Methodist Church, Sid and Trinity explored researched and found a provision in the Book of Discipline which allows a local church to reorganize as a co-affiliated church with another denomination. And that is exactly what Trinity United Methodist Church did under Sid's leadership in 2015, becoming a church that was reorganized as Trinity Church of Austin, co-affiliated as a United Methodist Church and a United Church of Christ congregation. Sid plans to retire in 2021, and his unique leadership has positioned Trinity Church to react nimbly to whichever ways the winds of the United Methodist Church blow in the next couple of years. I know that this is one of the more fascinating stories and unique stories of ministry that I have heard 
recently, and there are lessons that I have learned and lessons that I believe that you can learn as someone who loves the United Methodist Church with giving us some new eyes and new perspective that is good for us to hear. And I believe that you, the good people of the United Methodist People podcast, will appreciate. You can find out more about SID at the church website, trinitychurchofaustin.org. For right now, I invite you to listen in on the conversation I had with my great friend of many years, the unique Reverend Dr. Sid Hall of Trinity Church of Austin, Texas. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller with you here on the United Methodist People podcast. It is our mission here to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary in order to achieve our mission by making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we're pleased to have with us a great pastor and leader and author and innovative person. And his name is Reverend Dr. Sid Hall, who is has been in the ministry for 40 years or so, but 35 years of that or so has been at one church. We're going to talk about that, Trinity Church of Austin, Texas. He's also the author of a couple of books, Christian Anti-Semitism and, and Paul's Theology, and Three Mystics Walk Into a Tavern. We'll talk about those a little bit. We're going to talk about his mission and his ministry and what he sees for the future of the church and some models that he's worked on. And we welcome to the United Methodist People podcast, Reverend Dr. Sid Hall. Sid, welcome. Thank you, Brad. Great to be here. Awesome, my man. And uh, Sid and I have been friends for a long time. We go back a ways. We uh, did some ministry together and did some educational things together. And uh, he has been in ministry in Texas for some time and I in Indiana. Uh, but uh, what I'm interested initially, Sid, is some of your early faith journey. Tell me a little bit about how you uh, maybe came to Christ in the first place, some of your early influences that led you into uh, Christian ministry. Well, I grew up in Kokomo um, and uh, was a part of Main Street uh, Methodist Church there. And um, so uh, it was uh, a multi-generational uh, connection. My grandparents had been a part of that church since about 1929. And so my father and aunt and uncle all grew up in that church, as part of the Boy Scout Group there. My father was an Eagle Scout there in the 1940s, and I was an Eagle Scout there in the 1970s. It was our life. Um, and so I wasn't just a cradle Methodist. I was a, I'm a cradle Christian. I, I don't remember a time that it wasn't important to me. Um, I did have some dramatic experiences in my teenage years that, that uh, I guess you could call conversion type. But looking back on it now, I think that I was uh, in a process of conversion uh, from, from the moment of birth. And, uh, and some of it had to do with sitting next to my grandmother uh, in church and singing holy, 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 and then hearing her, uh, hearing her voice and smelling her perfume. That to me is as Christian as it gets. Um, but when I was a teenager, uh, our family went to northern Michigan to Methodist Chautauqua up there called Bayview, and uh, we were multiple generations there as well, and uh, had great preachers and, and uh, great youth programs and activities, and I, um, one, uh, one night when I was a, 
teenager, maybe 14, I had an experience where I was out on the dock uh, on Lake Michigan alone uh, late at night and, and saw the Northern Lights. And they were uh, overwhelming. It was just so powerful, so beautiful. Um, and I went back to my grandparents' cottage to, to share my experience, but they were asleep. So the next morning, I said to my grandmother, um, I saw the Northern Lights last night. And she says, oh, aren't they beautiful? And I said, yeah, but it was, it was different. It, it wasn't just that I was observing them. It's, it felt like they were inside of me. And she said, Sydney boy, which is what she always called me, um, when you grow up, you're going to be a Methodist minister. And I said, I am. And she says, yes. And I said, how do you know? And she said, I've known since you were a little boy. Um, and, um, and she gave me a book to read, uh, her copy, which I still have, of uh, Sheldon's uh, classic book from the late 1800s, In His Steps. And she said, just think about this book. I want to have a conversation with you about it when, when you finish it. And, um, and she talked about how all the times that are confusing uh, as an adult, uh, even as a Christian, she just tried to remember to go back to the question, what would Jesus do? And so long before it was a, a fun little meme or a, a wristbands that you could buy on the Cokesbury website, uh, it was a theme in, in the book In His Steps. And it was important enough for my grandmother to pass on to me. And that has been the touchstone for me, is to, I may have a different opinion from someone else about what uh, Jesus would do, but but my goal has been to try to go back to that again and again uh, when I'm confused, when I'm feeling ambiguous, uh, to try to get clarity and direction. So that was my early experience, yeah. and it's cool and, because uh, it was f familiar with your family. It was a uh, 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 physiological experience in terms of the seeing the Northern Lights and having a you know reaction to that was spiritual in nature and kind of test all the, all the points of your son, of, of your, uh, of who you are. That's awesome. It really was. And I, I got involved in youth activities after that in a big way. And by the time I got to college, I was even a bit of a Jesus freak, but uh, I ended up at Indiana central now you Indy and, um, and had uh, the great, uh, the great direction of teachers like Adolf Hansen, Herb Castle, uh, Fred Hill, who, who saw this enthusiastic, idealistic, um, sort of fundamentalist freak, uh, and they gently uh, took me under their wings, mentored me, introduced me to biblical criticism, introduced me to doubt as a healthy thing, and brought me along. And I am so thankful for them as well, because they're, they were a key part of my story. That's awesome. And so then out of that process, you ended up at, uh, at after coming out of UND, you ended up at Perkins Seminary in Texas, and you started a ministry in the United Methodist Church in Texas. Tell us a little bit about your early days. 
of ministry and maybe other influences in seminary? Uh, I, I actually went one year of seminary to CTS in, Indi- in Indianapolis. And, uh, okay. and, but I was serving a student pastor, at which you know, because we went to licensed to preach school together in 1979. Um, and uh, that's where we met. Yes. And then we're ordained deacons together in 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, we were. And so, um, so I actually transferred to Perkins um, in 81 after a year of seminary. And, um, and really, um, part of that was that I just was ready to try a different part of the world. Um, and I went where I got the best financial aid. Um, but I also had a, another influence there that got me there. Um, I don't remember his first name, but um, Dr. Valentine, who was the uh, district superintendent of the Southeast District of Indianapolis, who had been a Boston uh, grad, seminary said you really should look at Perkins uh, Schubert Ogden is there they've got some intriguing exciting theological stuff going on there Albert Outler still teaches um, Vic Furnish is doing New Testament I think you if you're going to go away uh, far away for seminary why that out and I was like okay and so uh, so off to Perkins I went and um, and it was a great experience. But just for reference, our listeners is a Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Yes, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, um, and so I out of that, you ended up in ministry in Texas. I did. I I had a Perkins at that time uh, required a full time internship the third year, right after your middle year, and so um, uh, which was unusual, even if you were serving a student pastor you had to quit that and do the internship and then go back to the student pastor. They wouldn't let you do it um, at your, you had to have a, a large church usually you were working at. So I went to the Perkins office, uh, intern office, and I said, I'd like to do an internship in Dallas since I've just moved here a year ago. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to stay. And my intern uh, uh, um, director there said, we don't have any available in Dallas. Uh, you're going to have to look elsewhere. And I said, um, where? And he said, you know, we've got one in Austin. And you would really like Austin. And I said, why? And he said, there are a bunch of people down there just like you. And I said, what, what are you talking about? I said, I said what, do you, what do you mean? He said, you know, uh, uh, rabble rouser. Uh, and I said, I'm not, a, I'm not a rabble rouser. And he says, yes, you are. Um, and what he was referring to is that uh, there was had been a a, uh, a lesbian support group that was trying to get official status at SMU uh, a, a few months before that, and uh, on the main campus, um, the undergraduate school, and the president was going on 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 uh, in the school newspaper saying we're a Christian institution and we, and we can't support that. So I, um, I thought, well, that's wrong. I, I don't believe I'm a Christian and I disagree with him. So, um, I organized uh, a protest, um, and got, uh, managed to get 60 Perkins, uh, students, spouses, children, faculty. Uh, and we went down and we staged a sit-in, 
uh, and the pre president of the university's office. Um, we didn't win the cause, but... Uh, but you were a rabble rouser. That's but I was a rabble rouser. And, and, and you've been labeled a, that ever since, pretty much, huh? And gained a reputation. And, and because of that, I got, a, I got to go to Austin for my internship. <laughs> and so, uh, so on internship, I really, I thought, I, I, I like it here. I think that I could uh, serve in this conference, and and so I um, I made a big decision to to not go back to Indiana, and that was a hard one because uh, my family had been in Indiana since since the 1830s. Um, so it was my 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 ancestors settled in Tipton and Howard County back back when it was first opened up. Uh, so it, it, I have some deep roots there and it was hard to leave, but, but I felt like it was also a way to differentiate from my family of origin, to find my own path, uh, to try something adventurous and new. Um, maybe it would work out. Maybe it wouldn't. I could always go home. Um, yeah. I, so I, well, it I, seems to, it seems to have worked out because you've been in ministry in Texas for a long time and then you've, stayed in Austin, or at least you did uh, shortly after graduating from seminary, and you've had the unusual circumstance, Sid, of, uh, especially in our United Methodist itinerant system, of being the pastor of one church for 33 33, years. yeah. Mm -hmm. 33 years. So tell us a little bit of how you ended up at Trinity Church in Austin, and how that happened, and then unpack the story of how, you, how you've been able to stay there for 33 years. I, I served as an associate for four years right out of seminary full time and um, really um, had a great experience. And that was in Austin. And my wife was in grad school. And uh, I said to the district superintendent that I'd like a, an appointment um, a, a, to be pastor in charge in some capacity. And I'd love to be in the Austin area if it's possible, because, uh, you know, somewhere within an hour's drive, maybe. Um, so she could continue in grad school. I had two young kids. Um, and he said, I'll see what I can do. And he told me about a couple different places. And then one day he called me up in March and said, Sid, you're going to Trinity. And I said, where's that? And he said, it's only two miles from where you are now. And I said, interesting. I've never heard of it. And he says, well, it's a very small church, loving people very uh, small, struggling. I said, what can you tell me about it? And he says, well, anyone under 70 is the youth group. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I said, okay, I get the picture. And he says, but it's in Austin. That's what you wanted. And I, he said, maybe you can help them have a good funeral. Or maybe. Wow. Did he actually use those, that phraseology, have, help them have did. a good funeral? Wow. Okay. And he said, so that's what you're walking into people yeah. over 70 and getting, you've been instructed to have a funeral. <laughs> okay. But he did, he did, he did say, or maybe who knows, uh, all things are possible with God. Maybe there'll be a resurrection. Yes. Okay. Um, but, um, but he was real clear there needed to be a death of some sort. And so at that time I had just finished my D men I'd gotten into the PhD program at, at 
at Perk at SMU. I was thinking about doing that too, thinking about teaching possibly after my wife finished grad school. Um, so I said to myself, um, I'm going to give it one year. And then if it, if, if it doesn't feel like this is the right thing for me, I'm going to go back full tilt into grad school. And I'd already decided that I wanted to go to actually transfer grad schools um, and work with uh, Ellis Rivkin uh, at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and, and get my PhD there and, and teach intertestamental Judaism uh, as a Christian. Uh, that was where my passion was. And, um, and so I, um, I said, I'll give it a year and see how it goes. And, um, and after a year, I, th I thought, well, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this, and I think I have something to contribute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to well, stick with it. Before this. you go too far from that, what did you actually yeah. find when you got there? When you got to the church, you had to subscribe to you. What was the feel? What was the vibe? Were they ready to die, as was kind of indicated? What did you find there? I did, I did what a lot of pastors do. I, I did uh, uh, house meetings to find out uh, where people were, what their dreams were. And um, we did it through, I did it for six months. And one of the things I heard over and over was, uh, we're just a little church and all the good pastors stay for just a year or two. And the, and the, the, the ineffective pastors seem to stay on forever. Mm, and, uh, okay. and so I, I heard sort of low church self-esteem. And I thought what these folks need is to know that they are enough, that they, that, they may not be the big church and they, they may be small in number, but uh, what is it that is their greatest strength? And they had in their, in their dreams, their hopes and dreams to have a parents or a, um, a mother's day out. Well, we found out our building um, did not qualify for a mother's day out because of its deterioration. But we also found out that we had, we could do a parents night out, uh, once a month and, and not have to follow those same guidelines. And so we set that in motion to start in January after I'd been there six months. And, um, and these older adults who were, who felt like they really had nothing to offer this, um, this hippie neighborhood near the University of Texas, um, they found out otherwise pretty quickly. They found out that those hippie parents of young children were looking for grandparent figures, loving grandparent figures in their own lives. And so they started coming. First, we only had like five kids or seven kids, basically the number of kids in the church. But within four months, we had 30 kids coming from all over the neighborhood and other parts of the city because there's nothing that was being offered like that at that time in Austin. Now there are multiple programs like that, but at mm -hmm. the time we were it. And so um, uh, what happened was pretty amazing. Those older adults who were volunteers um, built a relationship with those children. And eventually some of those families decided to, come to the church. And um, on Sunday morning, it took 
six months for them to do that, but they eventually ventured in and they, and they were greeted by familiar faces. They even knew to come into the back door, not through the front door. I mean, it just was amazing. And simultaneously, I was um, trying to get involved in the neighborhood, showing up for school board meetings and showing up at the local pastry shop and local pub and, and, and um, getting involved in, in neighborhood issues um, uh, about the social justice. And some of those people started actually coming, not to church, but some of those activists started coming to the parents' side out. And within two years of my getting there, I was doing lots of funerals, but we were also growing in a way that the church had not grown since the mid-1950s. So That's awesome. was, we were sort of dying and becoming new simultaneously. Which and, is which is what needed to happen, didn't it? Which had which is what basically what your DS said had to happen. It had to die in order to be new. And and I'm guessing, and help me out here a little bit, this is what's been going on an ongoing basis for thirty something years, or else you wouldn't still be there. It it has. And 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 those loving people that greeted those children and their and those families uh were the catalyst for that. They they realized that they were enough and that they, that they had something to offer that those families couldn't get anywhere else. And yeah. so I, I just, I'm so thankful for that. There was a, not everyone wanted to volunteer. Um, there was sort of a core group of 30 people or so that really um, came out for that. A number of others were just like, we're tired. We're not, we're not mm. going to do anything more. And so um, uh, about also another thing that happened that was really marvelous is Disciple Bible Study came out right at that time. Okay. And so my first year, in the middle of the year, I went to the first big training session for Disciple uh, before it was even launched in, in um, December or January in Dallas. And came back and I said, we can do this. And so uh, after being there a year, I invited uh, six people who were old time members, six people who were brand new to come in and be a part of a, of a new disciple group. And, um, and we met for the next year, my second year. And those people really built a relationship with each other. And this is a critical thing. One of those people in that group um, came to me and she said, Sid, she was a new member. She said, Sid, you know I'm a lesbian, but I don't know if I can share that with, with the, the folks in Disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? And I was like, I, I don't, I was a little nervous. I actually sure. I said, I, said ah, I, don't know if they're ready for that yet. And then I, what I was basically saying is I wasn't ready. For right. That. right. Um, but she asked me to do her Holy Union um, that spring that would happen in June of, um, of 1990. And I, I said, yes, of course. And there was nothing against it in the discipline mm-hmm. at that time. That didn't come along till 96. Um, and then she said, 
one day she she just uh, announced to the disciple group uh, during the prayer time, I'm uh, having a, a, a holy union with my, my partner, and Sid is doing it, and I would like to invite all of you to come. Wow! And I was like, I was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. She she outed me as an ally, and yeah. uh, and I'll be done. I want to hit the pause here just for a second. I just want yeah. to reflect just a second, and then I I this yeah. is a real transitional point in our yeah. story here. Yeah. But in terms of order to have that point where she felt comfortable to share that, some things were already happening there in the yeah. churches. I'm discerning here with you, Sid. Yes. And there was the people were ready for something to happen. There had been yes. some history there where some good things and some not so good things were ready for something to happen. Most of them were, many of them were. You came in and got immediately involved with listening to the folks and also getting involved with the community, not just, you know, with the home groups and the church, but also the community, the school board, and so on. Then you did a deep dive into scripture with disciple Bible study. Then out of that, the situation came here, which would have been, would have been then and still would be now dramatic for many congregations and many clergy to deal with for someone even to come forward to you and say, I'm a lesbian. I'd like you to do a, a union with me. And this led to some really interesting, this has led to some really interesting things happening in life of your church, including you, uh, your church becoming a reconciling ministry network church. And I just like you to take the story from there, but I just want to reflect with you. Was I, am I accurate in kind of describing oh, the, the situation there that helps it to move to this next phase? You are. And, you know, uh, one of the cool things that happened in that disciple Bible study that night when she shared that is one member said, I have a cousin that I'm pretty sure uh, was a lesbian. She's no longer living, but I'm, this is an older adult. Someone had been a longtime member of the church. She said, I, I'm pretty sure she was. And her, and our family never really accepted her. And then another woman who was a, had been a, a member of the church before I got there said, my brother's gay. Mm-hmm. All at once we had. So it opened the, gave an opening for folks, didn't it? It, it provided the opportunity for, for others to share and so that group became the ad in 1990. I introduced to the, uh, I went to Mark Bowman, who at that time was the founder and, and uh, director of, of the, uh, what was called the Reconciling Congregation Program. At the, that's what it was called at the time. Um, came to Austin. And, and I remember walking out of that meeting with him and walking to the car and saying to a friend, I think. I think I'm going to do this at Trinity. I think, I think the new people that are coming in and some of the, the ones that have been there are, are, are going to be able to make this happen. And at that time, there were no reconciling congregations in, in Texas. Um, and so to start that was a, felt like a big deal. Um, and, uh, and I went to some of those people that had supported, uh, this woman in disciple, and I said, "Will you be, will you become part of a ad hoc ex- exploration committee?" And um, and she said, uh, "They said yes." And and um, and so we began to invite uh, oh uh, the director of P Flag to come in, and, um, a pastor in the Lutheran Church whose church had just done the same, had become welcoming, the first one in Austin. Uh, the only one in Austin besides MCC, um, 
we brought in people like that to share. And, um, and you know, very few people came to those meetings, um, but it was in the bulletin. And it was announced on Sunday morning with other announcements. It'd be like the trustees will be meeting on Tuesday night. And on, on Wednesday morning, there will be a, uh, a women's circle meeting. Uh, and on Wednesday night, um, there will be a, a gay and lesbian task force exploration committee meeting. And, and we just, and then on Thursday. Even you hear you say that it's just like the earth would just shake oh yeah. under almost every church and i'm sure it did to some degree in your church there it did but it just just like wow kaboom it, so but but go on i actually would rehearse on saturday night standing in the mirror so that i could announce it in a way that didn't sound so i didn't sound scared because because my tendency was to go and the and the united methodist women will be meeting on wednesday morning and on wednesday night we're okay. going to have a and so I noticed that I was doing that and I thought, I can't do that. I need to make it, I need to, to kind of normalize it or normalize whatever. You it. Might, yeah. Yes. Okay. And so I did be very that. cognizant of your tone of voice, uh, mannerisms, all that kind of stuff, right? Friedman's all Friedman's stuff about being a yes. non-anxious presence. Yes. Uh, I was trying to do that. I'd just gone to a Friedman workshop uh, with Friedman and, uh, and thought, I've got to model this non-anxious presence stuff uh, if I'm going to make this work. And so, um, so we, um, we began exploring. And by uh, a year later, uh, by spring of 1991, I decided to do a sermon series on liberation. And I, liberation of the earth, liberation of women liberation of people of color, um, liberation of, of, uh, the, of the poor, and, and liberation of gay and lesbian people. And I was not using LGBTQ um, letters at that time. Just so basically the liberation theology strand running through all of that, I assume. And okay. Keep so going. I did a, did a series on that. And of course, the one that was packed full was on the one on gay and lesbian liberation. Yes. And, and some of our members that had really, some of the older members that had not been volunteers with the young children who, who weren't getting to know the young families were pretty disgruntled mm-hmm. and had, had, um, had even stopped coming to church. Some. Mm-hmm. And, but they were there that Sunday. And by the next week, I got a call from the district superintendent. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> and here's what he said. This is this was marvelous. He said, Sid, a group of, of Trinity members have, have asked to meet with me. There's about 15 of them. And they're they're coming in this this next week. And um, they I, they're unhappy with the direction of the church. And I um, I wanted to ask you, have they told you that they're doing this? And I said, no, this is the first I've heard of it. And he says, well, by discipline, they have to inform you. Um, otherwise, I'm not allowed to meet with them. And so um, I just want you to know that, that when they get here, I'm going to ask them if they've asked you. 
And when they tell me no, I'm going to let them know that I can't meet with them. And I said, wow. This is, That's awesome. That is awesome. He says, I just want you to know that, that your church, uh, little as it is, is one of the fastest growing churches in our conference. And I'm not going to, I don't know anyone else who's doing this kind of ministry. And I, I'm, I'm not going to do anything as, as the person on, on watch as your DS. I'm not going to do anything to mess that up. And wow. so. Um, that is so I, awesome because we both know, Sid, that doesn't, it could have gone a much different way. <laughs> very wow. different. So but let's Talk praise God. Non- Non-anxious presence. Yeah, be thankful for the leadership of that DS. Yeah. Oh, he was, he's, he's amazing. And so uh, he, uh, he paved the way. And so uh, (laughs) a couple weeks later, I got a call from one of the lay members and said, Sid, uh, we we want you to know, we really love you. And we think you're a, a good person. We just are not happy with the direction of the church. And we are going to meet with the district superintendent, and we just want you to know about that. And I said, okay. "Oh well, thank you for letting me know." And um, and so, and they said, "We're told that we're we have to invite you if you want to come." And I said, oh, "That won't be necessary, but thank you." But I appreciate being informed. Mm-hmm. And so they got into the office for the second time, and this time the DS said. Um, you know, I hear what you're saying, and I know this is all very new, but um, he said, I'm not, Trinity is growing, and um, and it is the only Methodist church right now that is doing this kind of ministry, and I'm not going to do anything to change that. Um, there are many other Methodist churches that you can go to that will support your viewpoint, mm-hmm. and so I had... Uh, a huge group of people leave um, um, right after that, yes. about 20, 25 people. And they, they were... Which represented they, just kind of percentage-wise what... Uh, they were, by that pardon. time, uh, we probably had 125 members by that time okay. because of the new growth. But they represented probably uh, a third of the operating income. Yes. Yeah. So, which is right. the leverage, which is the leverage point that a lot of folks utilize, of course, uh, attendance and giving, and and it's <laughs> and you got to say it's effective and significant in many cases. It was and scary. So, yeah, it's scary. So and, and then and then we uh, so um, by by the uh, by the spring of 1992, I'd been there four years at that time. Um, I had kept a file, private file, that said yes, no, and maybe. And I was having conversations with church members. And I knew that I needed to get to 80% uh, before we could vote to be reconciled. Um, it wasn't just enough to have 51%. You know, just smart yeah. smart politics, right? Absolutely. And so I kept the file, and when it got to 80%, I called the DS and I said, we're ready for a vote. And uh, he said, okay. So we had a called charge conference. The district superintendent led it. Um, it was a painful uh, evening. Uh, lots of people saying just 
Sid's running this church and he's inviting in pedophiles and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it was really just a sad thing to hear, but it was also powerful to hear other stories. There was one older woman in my church um, and um, she had called me up about a month before the vote and said, Sid, she was homebound. She said, I, I need to talk to you about this homosexual thing. And I said, okay. And I was trying to have those conversations with everyone. Sure. So, so I went over to her house and she said, I don't know if you know this, but I came from West Texas and, um, and we all came to the university, to Austin. It was the big thing to do. And the whole family lived with our dear uncle who lived in Austin. He had left West Texas a long time ago. And uh, when, while we were at the university, he put us up. And we didn't know what to call it then, but he would be what we would now call a homosexual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we loved him. And, you know, I don't know what happened, but something happened where he was uninvited to our family gatherings. And he was the only, he, he was the man in our family that would play with the kids. He knew how to play the piano and we would all sit around and sing together. And uh, while the others were out just talking and playing horseshoes, he was, he was with us. Mm. And we were all terribly upset by that. Um, and she said to me, Sid, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be at the meeting for the vote. But if I do, I'm going to be voting for my uncle. Mm, wow. Wow. And she was there. And I kept waiting when people were saying really mean things. I kept looking at her, hoping she'd say something, but she that's just okay. not her personality. Sure. But when she but when when the when the evening was over and she walked out. She looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, we did a good thing tonight. That, that well, t- tell me about, gave me give strength. Me, and that's an awesome story there, but you, you just got to let me know how the story came down. We did a good thing. So what was the vote? How did that actually come down? 79 for 21% against. All right. And, uh, and, and it was in the front page of the, of the local newspaper within a few days, mm-hmm. um, which we weren't actually going to do, but someone got wind of it. And there was my, there was my picture right on the front page. And Well, give us an idea then what it's like to have been one of the first uh, reconciling ministries congregations and give us a little definition of that as well for our listeners and how that's been like to live, live that out in your conference and in your community uh, as a church that is um uh, caring for and celebrating LGBTQA people and just how life is working for you now since this occurred. You know, um, it, it got us on the, on the radar. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we were known in some activist groups before then, but man, that we had visitors, like crazy, not just LGBTQ people, but um, straight people that that wanted to be a part of a church like that. And so 
it really uh, became the defining moment for our future growth. So it was a, we didn't do it because of that. We did it because it was the right thing, mm-hmm. but, but it became the catalyst for the change at the same, you ask about the long appointment. Um, yes. The, the, we got a brand new Bishop right as that was happening who was very conservative, who told me um, that I forbid, he says, I forbid you from voting to be reconciled. And I said, Bishop, um, it's not, it's nothing official in the church, uh, in the Methodist church. It's outside of that. Um, It's among Methodists, but it's not a Methodist thing. So forgive me, sir, but uh, you or I or anyone else does not have the authority tell a church that they can't vote to be reconciled. And um, I bet that went over big with him, huh? <laughs> I'll never forget the look on my DS's face, who was sitting next to the bishop, and the bishop could not see the DS's face. And this was the DS that was the big ally. My yes. DS looked at me and went, <laughs> just wow. like, I can't believe you're saying that. And uh, yeah. so we voted, and, and uh, the bishop told me, um, you better make it work where you are because there will not be any other appointments for you as long as I'm Bishop here. And that was, that was eight years. And I was immediately removed from any district or conference committees and could not serve, was not allowed to serve on any of those for eight years. Sure. Um, But, but at the same time, I suddenly gained a reputation as an activist and, um, and I started getting elected to the delegation. So I was elected twice on the, uh, the jurisdictional general conference delegation. Oh, and so the, the, the bishop ended up having to see me for two different quadrennials anyway. Yeah. He had to deal so with you, didn't he? He had to deal with the, your, your face. He had to see your pretty face, right? All the time. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, um, so, and that's part of what's going on in our church right now. We've had to deal with it, haven't we? The last, yeah. uh, I mean, for many years, but it's particularly the last eight years and especially the last few years as we've had this great dilemma in the church, essentially around LGBTQ issues. And I'd like you to kind of speak to that out of your experience as one who has been the activist, who has led a church through the, you know, just touching on, I'm sure, what is just a part of a long, excruciating process to become a a, a reconciling network church and and be welcoming to folks it's led to growth and you've been there 33 years uh i like your take on what's going on in the church here the last few years especially since the last uh, general conference a couple last general conferences the one we got coming up in uh, 21 the changes happening in the church just i just like for you just to camp on that just a little bit sid tell me your take as one who's been intimately involved with this issue of the rights of LGBTQ persons and that the two main issues, of course, in our church have to do with ordination and, and covenants of which you had, you've already shared, you had experience with a covenant service quite a while back. So just speak to this a little bit, if you don't mind. For me, it really goes back to that work in Holocaust studies that I did back in the, in the um, early eighties. Um, and the focus of my doctoral dissertation. Um, I, 
I began to wrestle with, it was very easy to, to look over at the Germans or the Nazis and say, look at what those horrible people did to the Jews and to the Roma, um, to, to people who with disabilities. Um, but, uh, but then when you start saying, um, when have I been silent? Um, I didn't have to go very deep to find plenty of narrative on my own silence, my own complicity. And so for me, it goes back to my grandmother's thing of in his steps, what would Jesus do? Um, well, Jesus would not be silent when the bully is, is, is doing their thing out on the playground. That's what Jesus would do. And so for me, the reconciling ministry, um, Black Lives Matter, um, supporting asylum seekers, um, using inclusive language in the church, uh, supporting uh, feminist uh, and, and women's role in the church. All of these things are part of a liberative uh, energy of the spirit that, um, that is beyond any one of those, uh, but, very, but has a very specific and unique role for each uh, that requires, especially if you're a person like me, uh, who's white, who's male, who's straight, who's able-bodied. Um, I'm, I'm on the side of privilege in every single thing that I can think of. And it requires me stepping over that line and saying, not just recognizing that people who are, aren't like me are hurting, but recognizing how my own silence hurts them. How I am part of the system that perpetuates the oppression. And so the real work is not to fix their problem. The real work is to fix my problem. Yes. And so, so I see the LGBTQ movement within the United Methodist Church as what it means to ask, what would Jesus do? And to be in line with with a gospel of liberation and love that says, I've come to, to set the oppressed free and to, to proclaim that right now is the acceptable year of the Lord. This is it. This is, this is the time. Or using Esther's language, uh, for such a time as this, we are called to speak, to, to, to be bold. And you, you can be smart about that. You can, you can keep a file and you're hidden in your own desk about, yes, no, and maybe when it comes to the vote and, and get to 80%. You don't have to, to just jump off the cliff and, and, and hurt yourself. There are ways to do this, but sometimes there aren't. Sometimes you just have to jump even when you don't have uh, uh, a neat, neat file uh, no. telling you what's that, going on. That jump sounds a lot like faith, doesn't it, Ted? It sure does. <laughs> And so, so, you know, I have no regrets. I didn't, I didn't get to climb the ladder uh, uh, the way some pastors do, but man, I have gotten to, I have gotten to, to live in the trenches of, of people's pain and, and be part of a, what I think of as almost like a base community of liberation within the United Methodist Church. It's just been absolutely thrilling and invigorating and a ministry that that is surpassed 
my capacity to ever dream of and to come up with myself. Uh, and, and, and so I think that's where we are in the, in the United Methodist Church. They're, the people in the center, um, who I think in the 2019 general, called General Conference, were wanting the one church plan as a way to keep the church unified. That was their goal, not liberation, but to keep the church unified. I think many of those people in the center got close to LGBTQ activists for the first time in the church. And they woke up to the pain. And so their motivation now, many of them anyway, in the center is not a one church plan, but it's liberation of LGBTQ people. And so I think that the 2019 General Conference, as painful as it was, was a powerful catalyst in waking up many who were on the fence and who were motivated out of church unity rather than liberation, have woken them up to the pain that this straight privilege centered church is causing a segment of our United Methodist. It certainly has put us in the, it certainly put us in the middle of a very painful, chaotic time a storm. Uh, is one a metaphor that might be used. And now we're, for whatever reason, here we're, we're recording this in the middle of July of 2020. We have another year to go before 20, General Conference of 21. So we're kind of in the lull, the pause in the storm that has given us some time to process some things or to have some time of contemplation and dealing with things. I, I think we're going to come out of a much different place, but we at least are getting into some uh, connections spiritually and in our interpersonal relationships and conversations like this help, I believe. I also think we need to look at what's next, you know, and that's why I want to go with you for a minute here, Sid, about what's next. And, you know, you've got a new model you're using in your church, right. for instance. And, and, I, like, I, go ahead. and I, do, I do think that, you know, people talk about the United Methodist Church being in crisis. Um, but uh, we've been in crisis since 1972 when we put language in the discipline that deliberately excluded a segment of, of our own people. Um, and and so, oh, by the way, we've been in decline since essentially that time as well. <laughs> right. And that may or may not have to do with it, but it is. Yeah, it's a piece. It's a piece. But, but so we're not, we're not suddenly in a crisis. We're waking up to the crisis that's mm-hmm. been here for, for a generation. And so, that to me is similar to what's happening with Black Lives Matter. Uh, white people are going, wow, how did we get to be in this crisis? And black people in this country are saying, hello, we've been in a crisis right. for 400 years yes. with the institution of slavery and Jim Crow and et cetera. And, a lot and of white folks you. think it's a moment where for black folks and many others, it's been a movement. It's been going on forever. So right. yes, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, some white people, for starting to wake up. Uh, uh, so that's, that's how I see the United Methodist Church. So, um, you know, as you can guess, uh, after voting to be reconciling in 92, every time there was a general conference in 96 and 2000, et cetera, we would have members who would join because they would like, they liked being a part of an inclusive congregation that really didn't fully comprehend that the United Methodist Church as a denomination 
was still being exclusive. And we would lose members. Um, um, one, one, after one general conference, I think it was 2004, we lost as many as 30 people in the church mm. because, because uh, they just, they loved our congregation, but they could not hang with the United Methodist Church any longer. And so in 2012, after general conference, our leadership team said, how do we stop the bleeding? This is, this is untenable for our future as a congregation. Uh, maybe we need to leave the United Methodist Church, but there's the whole thing about the trust clause and, and all sorts of other things like that. So we looked into the discipline itself, and there's a whole section in there about ecumenical ministries, about churches that are federated or union church or duly yoked. And, and the old um, General Commission on Interreligious Christian Unity and the Interreligious Concerns even put out a booklet on how to become a federated church and a union church. And so our leadership uh, inst instituted a, a task force that would explore this and without really any attachment to which denomination or, or if we were going to do it. And by 2014, the, the leadership team, uh, based on the recommendation of the committee, had decided that we wanted to become a union church with the United Church of Christ. And um, we would remain United Methodist, but we would also become uh, UCC. Now, UCC theologically, uh, uh, sacramentally, is very, very much aligned to the United Methodist Church. But as you know, uh, polity-wise, is a completely different structure. It's congregational mm -hmm. rather than sure. hierarchical. Um, but there were models out there for this. And uh, uh, most of them were federated churches. With federated, as you know, you have to keep separate membership roles. And when someone joins the church, you say, are you joining the UCC? Or are you joining the United Methodist? And you keep all that separate. You keep a separate budget, a whole bit. We felt like that would be divisive. So we decided to become a union church where you're fully United Methodist and fully UCC simultaneously. Uh, kind of like the trip. An integrated model it one is. to another. Yes, a covenant so, model, if you will. It is. And so when someone joins the church, you don't ask them what denomination they're joining. They join the church and then they self-identify however they choose. And so um, what we were hoping is that the members that were disgruntled with the Methodist Church when the next general conference came around in 2016 would have the option of, of identifying as UCC and therefore wouldn't feel compelled to lead the local congregation. Mm -hmm. That was the big motivation behind it. Um, and so we had a series of um, house meetings and churchwide meetings for about a year. Um, starting in 2014, and in the summer of 2015, the congregation voted um, unanimously in a churchwide meeting um, to become a union church with the UCC wow. and the UNC. United, a, a unanimous vote. That's uh, amazing. And now that you are a united church, totally UMC, a totally UCC, and what I'm trying to want to 
put out there for our listeners as we try to strengthen the, the connection, the, that the connection of the United Methodist Church is now can be seen in different ways, I believe. And we need to look at different models. Some models are already there in our discipline, as you've mentioned, some other ways of doing church as other, as people are uh, going through this time of chaos. And this is a model I think that people can see that here's an example of how it's working. And it has some implications even right now as uh, in terms of pastoral appointment and, you know, in the next year or so, you're going to be uh, uh, going into retirement and there are some implications of how that's going to work there. And so, Speak to that just a little bit before we uh, go to something else here. We, we put in our um, bylaws, and the UCC makes you have a bylaw, bylaws and, and articles of, of incorporation, um, like a nonprofit would. And that's a good thing because you want to have clarity. And in that, we had to, I had to have approval by my bishop and the cabinet. And one of the things that was put in there is that when the church... Uh, when it comes time for a pastoral change, the church would have the option of going the United Methodist route and asking for an appointment or going the UCC route and uh, doing a search. Mm-hmm. And that would be up to the congregation. And I was a little surprised that our, our bishop and cabinet approved uh, that, okay. but they did. What they knew, the bishop said, you know, I wish you weren't doing this over this one issue. And I said, Bishop, what you need to understand is that this is the only way our congregation can figure out how to stay United Methodist. Without completely absolving, yeah. Uh, absolving, yeah. dissolving, so, I should say. So, yeah. so I think when he heard that, he understood that it was critical. So, mm-hmm. uh, so next year, this congregation has decided that when I retire, they will not be seeking an appointment. They will be doing a national search for an interim, which the UCC does very well, unlike the Methodist. Um, Methodist pastors who come after a long, long pastorate um, end up being interims often anyway. Yes. <laughs> but yes. Uh, whether it was intended or not. Right, um, right, but, the, right. but the UCC has trained interims to come in for a year or two mm-hmm. for that and, specific ministry. And anyway, you cut it, you've been here for 33 years. There's going to be a dynamic that is there that has to be addressed. Now you're addressing it by retiring and moving out of state and so on, but you are uh, preparing accordingly. And, and I just part of the thing, what we're talking about here, Sid is, is strategic out of uh, thinking for our United Methodist clergy and our United Methodist brothers and sisters to uh, see how we can do church and be more be effective, be impactful, uh, may be transformative. And uh, what a cool story you've had to share and, here. And it's and, awesome. And, and, you know, our motivation at the time was to stop the bleeding. How do we stop members from leaving? But when we voted in 2015, it had shifted to a more positive um, sort of statement. And the statement was, was this. How do we as a congregation maintain our value system of inclusivity, no matter what the United Methodist Church votes on? Mm-hmm. That was the, that became the way we framed it yeah. at the time of the vote. And so. Well, we, that we, you have a very powerful states about inclusivity and in your mission statements on your website, that's really emphasize all that. So you're, Going back to your DNA as a church, then about what you're yes. talking about. So and we lost we lost zero members 
in 2016 and in 2019. Um, well, so. let's bring this conversation around here in the next yeah. minute or two to, to sure. kind of bring it to landing with this. I want to, let's take lessons learned. You have a unique experience, in many ways, Sid. There's not many United Methodist clergy who have been in one church for 33 years. Okay, that's one. Most uh, clergy move after three or four or five years at, at most. And therefore, churches have had that experience of changing clergy. You've also transitioned a church from what was described as maybe the funeral may be in order. And mm-hmm. now it's a strong, thriving church. If I'm not sure what your attendance is now, but you know we've got the COVID thing going on, but a strong, thriving church. We have around tr- active 300 people. Yeah. You know? So we're talking about a strong church, but we're not talking about a mega church of a couple thousand no. or whatever. No. Uh, we're talking about a strong local church that's making an impact. And part of the impact you've made is because you've made some really intentional movements towards inclusivity, which has included the LGBTQ uh, folks who emerged naturally out of your ministry, out of your, and of that engagement with community. And that's all uh, impressive. And then you made some of the hard decisions to be the reconciling ministry network church. And then, and then developing some new models here as we go through this incredibly painful time in our church of transition. We know in 21 at general conference, one way or another, something's going to change dramatically. Something's Something. going to change. Something's going to change dramatically. And I just like your take, Sid, out of your experience, uh, what gives you, uh, you know, what are you thinking right now about our church in terms of what gives you hope? What's, what do you kind of see as a, a glimmer of hope for our future moving forward? What are some good things that are happening that you've experienced or you see? Well, I think, as I said a few moments ago, that um, regardless of what ends up happening structurally with what is, what, what is now the United Methodist Church, there are people who have woken up uh, to the pain, who, who were otherwise uh, in the past not allies. And, um, and I see that as, as um, no matter what happens next year, uh, that that has been a positive result of the 2019 uh, General Conference. Um, so I see that as a very positive thing. I think another thing is that um, in the 50s, uh, after World War II, sort of the model for future churches is unification, coming together. Uh, and if it meant compromising um, the way you are individuated, then you do so. Um, to come together. And we all know that, uh, you know, some of those compromises that happened between the EUV and the, and the Methodist church have been painful for those who know their EUV history um, uh, in terms of what was left out. Um, well, I think we're in a different era now where we're discovering that unity does not um, need to is not the same as uniformity that that we can find ways to respect and love each other even when we disagree it may not mean that we're in the same local church or to the same denomination but i think it's not just enough to find ways to individuate and to hold to your position strongly but the other piece that we haven't even talked about today is um still being able to see the face of god in your neighbor and in wow. your enemy, and in those with whom you disagree, I, I, there are there are conservatives in my not 
in our conference that I absolutely disagree with. Mm -hmm. But I refuse to see them other than anything than uh, the child, a child of God. Yes. And I feel like that, that going forward, that may not help us structurally. It may not help us in terms of unifying a denomination, but it might help us be better humans uh, yes. in the church together. And so see, that's my hope. Yeah. See God in that other, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. In other exactly. Yeah. Well, you and I are pretty much exactly the same age. We were ordained together and some things like that. We've had a long history together. And you were described as a, uh, in your early in your ministry as a rabble rouser and who you, in many ways you continue to do that. And that, that's awesome. And yet I hear a lot of our colleagues, especially some of us who are in our general age category, who are kind of weary and beat up a little bit after a lot of things and churches are certainly churches are in decline and so on. But I see one of the hopes that I see uh, Sid is among some of the younger clergy and some of the people oh. who are the younger rabble rousers, maybe not even young in age, but young in terms of their perspective and so on and coming from different uh, perspectives yeah. as well. And I just like for you to give just a word to that person who may be ordained uh, or coming into the church as a clergy person now, maybe a new royal elder, perhaps. What kind of things would you share with them from an old rabble rouser to a young, uh, a young person entering ministry? Find a way to be authentic. Um, because the church and the pressure of pleasing people, of pleasing a hierarchy, of pleasing even a local PPR committee, um, can suck the lifeblood out of you. And, and, and if, if you can't find a way to nurture yourself, even if it's apart from the work that you do in the local church, through your friendships, through your family, um, through community involvement, if you can't find a way to nurture that part of your authentic, real self, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill you spiritually. Yeah. And so to me, one of the things that I would say to young people or people coming into ministry is be authentic. Um, don't be a jerk. Authentic is not a, an excuse to become a jerk, but be, but find a way to be authentic to otherwise, if you can't, if you can't do that, it's going to suck you dry. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's really, that's apart from activism. That's apart. Sure. From, that's just, that's just, that's, General advice that I've had, I've had 12 interns over my 33 years. Um, and, um, and that's one of the things that I share with them. Um, please, please find a way to be who you are because the gift of who you are is, is something no one else can offer in the church or life. And so do it. That being authentic piece is about self-care in order to care for others. And that's an awesome thing. And, well, Sid, you've been a great guest here today. I appreciate it, man. How can folks be, if folks want to learn more about you or about your church, uh, how, can, how can they do that? Um, well, our, our website is um, it's Trinity Church of Austin, um, and it's um, www.trinitychurchofaustin.org. Pretty easy. Right. And, uh, uh, and um, there's information about... Uh, there and there's ways to contact me in the midst of that. Um, awesome. And um, I'm happy to, you know, I think we all have a story to tell and hopefully it's a, 
it's a story of hope and a story of liberation. And, and I, I love telling the story and I will continue to do that even after retirement. Awesome. Well, you told a great story here today and I just want to thank you for, uh, for being our guest on the United Methodist People Podcast. We have complete show notes at unitedmethodistpodcast.com where you'll find the links to uh, Sid's uh, church's web address and some other things too. You'll hear that along with the transcript of our our interview. And so I just invite you to learn more about this and to use some teaching points we've talked about here to to apply them to your ministry here on the United Methodist People Podcast as we're always trying to strengthen the connection, however it shakes out, through great conversations and commentary here today with Reverend Dr. Sid Hall from Trinity Church of Austin, Texas. When I think about my friend Sid Hall, I am reminded of the scripture from 2 Timothy 1.6, which says, For this reason, I remind you, talking to Timothy, talking to all of us really, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Sid and I were ordained together as elders in the church. I know him. I know his background. And I know how he has used the unique spiritual gifts of leadership and discernment that God has given him and then allowed them and encouraged them to be fanned into flames to serve the cause of Christ in his local church there in Austin, Texas, and to serve that community where they serve. Sid's unique gift is to keep searching to keep learning, to keep applying biblical principles, and to keep leaning into the faith of our fathers and mothers and our Wesleyan heritage to look for the unique and special ways that God can fan into flames the unique gifts God has given all of us and to not grow weary in doing good for the kingdom. One such example is reorganizing as a co-affiliated congregation, United Methodist, United Church of Christ, that's just one approach that you is unique to Sid Hall that we can all learn from. But after all, we're Wesleyans. We follow in the footsteps of one unique person, John Wesley. I mean, he rode on horseback for thousands and thousands of miles to preach to folks in mines and factories and in the, in the farm fields. That was so far away from the high church pulpit he was appointed to. That's pretty unique. Then there's his brother, Charles who was unique in that he had the audacity to write lyrics to praise God to the tunes of the pub songs of his days. That's the pop music of his era. I mean, Christ the Lord is risen today. You can almost hear it being sung in a pub, the tune there. It's one of my favorites. And of course, there is Jesus, of course. He welcomed the immigrants. He partied with sinners. And he died on the cross for your sake and mine and for the sake of the world. He rocked the world. That was pretty unique. And I would say that was life-changing, world-changing uniqueness. We live in some troubled time, friends. We live in some times when there's a lot of pressures going on. And I want to encourage you, the good people who listen to the United Methodist People podcast, to find your unique way to respond to these challenges in ministry and in the world situation we find ourselves in with the political upheaval and racial strife and with uh, the situation in our United Methodist Church and to celebrate the unique gifts that God has given you and to indeed allow God 
to fan in the flames that are in you to do some real damage for the kingdom of God in your setting, in your community. So let us be a part of an encouraging people, to be encouraged to look for unique ways to serve God, even in these times. One of these ways you can do that is be connected to back episodes of the United Methodist People podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and facebook.com, United Methodist Podcast, or subscribe on iTunes. Lots of great resources there. I invite you to do that and to be encouraged in the fan of the flames the gifts God has given you. Let me continue to encourage you and close with these words from John Wesley, which speak to me and I hope they'll speak to you. My fear is not that our great movement, known as the Methodists, will eventually cease to exist or one day die from the earth. My fear is that our people will become content to live without the fire, the power, the excitement, and the supernatural element that makes us great. Until next time, good people, this is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Now go and do all the good you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.